Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost and I'm here with my co-host Peter Linus and this is Being Human. So we're back again in this never-ending cycle of lockdowns and circuit breakers and fire breaks. It could go on forever. If you're listening to this in 2023, we're not on repeat. <laughs> we're still here. We're, we're back. We are back season two, but we are definitely abiding by all social distancing rules. I'm locked in my house in London. You're over in Northern Ireland. Yes, it means I can take my face mask off then. We're safely oh. social distanced. <laughs> and the dad joke right, right, comes already. Um, okay, so... Welcome back. This is um, season two, episode two of the Being Human podcast. If you don't know already, we are both on the leadership team of the Evangelical Alliance. And we're here because we passionately believe that Jesus is the best news. And we want to help the church share that news both bravely and kindly to everyone. So last week, we jumped straight in to the very topical question of whose lives matter? Black lives, all lives pre-born lives, refugees, those with disabilities, the rich, the successful, the nurses, the delivery drivers, the list could go on. Yeah, but really the question below that was why? On what basis do we claim that any life matters actually? Why should we treat everyone equally? The culture around us is really built on this idea of utility, the idea of what is useful. Your value is based on how useful you are. So if you are useful, you have value in our society. And if you're not, it raises big questions. Why should we let people come here and migrate to this country if they're not useful to us is often how it's framed? Why should you get treatment on the NHS for COVID? The more useful you are, the more treatment you should get. Why should you have any kind of rights? And that's why those who are disabled, the elderly, unborn babies, particularly those with disabilities, and a whole range of minority groups are often not valued in our society. Yeah, so we explored some of that and then we looked at the idea that the biblical story is a counter story to some of these questions and some of these values that society puts on us because it says that every person is valuable because they're made by God and made in his image. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female, what your economic status is, what your ethnicity is or what your usefulness is, your life matters. Yeah, and it's not just lives. I was just watching David Attenborough's new documentary on Netflix, and it's clear that these value systems deeply shape the way in which we value the world around us, our interaction with it, the use of the resources in it, our response to the climate crisis, big, important issues that are impacting us all today. Which is what we want to look at for this episode. And I guess we want to do two things. It's like we've planned this or something. <laughs> I mean, careful. But well, we want to look back a little bit and look uh, more closely at some of these foundations of some of these value systems that we're going to be talking about in this season. What are the foundational stories that form the way we see the world? Where do they come from? Why are they important? And then secondly, we want to look at how these foundational stories, particularly the biblical story, not only shape the value we ha- we play on people, but also how we value our planet, creation, the world around us. So as usual, just some small questions to wrestle with. 
Yes, so I fear we might run out of time, time trying to wrestle with these, but this is what being human is all about. We want this podcast to jump into the stories that we're all living through, uh, the everyday stories, and then we want to kind of pull back the curtain and see what's going on behind them. Uh, see what are the narratives and the stories that are trying to make sense of our experiences and trying to guide us through them. And at the same time, we want to look at the Christian narrative, what we often refer to as the God story, and show how that full story is the only story that can truly answer the question of what it means to be human. And because this podcast is part of a bigger project, looking at what it means to be human, um, then we're going to look at how we navigate ourselves through this intersection of the God story and a variety of cultural stories um, we are, all of us, Christian or not, being pushed and pulled by rival stories about what it is to be human. So please do check out our website, uh, beinghumanproject.com. Sign up for regular emails. Um, come and find out a little bit more about what we're doing, what we're talking about as we highlight interesting articles, people doing interesting things around this conversation. Um, keep in touch with us as this larger project of being human begins to take shape. Always the comms director. Thank you. <laughs> so you said in this episode, we're going to be looking back then to foundation stories. So when you hear that, I'm thinking, what is a foundation story? Because when people hear the word story, so often they're thinking, does that mean fictional? Does that mean true? What are you saying there? Um, well, so I do like fictional stories. Um, English lit grad. Um big fan. Um, but no, what I mean by story is we all find ourselves in the midst of a story. We all tell stories to shape and to make sense of the happenings in our world. We do it in a narrative structure. We can't help it. Um, and we each have different types of stories to help us navigate our world. So we have a personal story that we tell ourselves and we find ourselves in the middle of. I remember my school teacher always used to tell me to stop telling the story that I always lost things, including my keys, my homework, my coursework, everything, my wallet. Um, he said, change your story because you're putting an identity on yourself. We tell stories about ourselves all the time. Then we find ourselves in wider stories like our family stories, our fathers, our mothers, our grandfathers, our heritage. It helps shape who we are. These stories are often passed down to us. They predate us. Our parents and those around us have shared these stories and we carry them because they have an impact on us. Lots of families have origin stories that children love to hear. My kids love to hear how Andy and I met, where we got married, what happened, what our kids' lives lives as kids was like. But, but each of these has an impact in how we view the world around us. Yeah. And then I guess foundational stories are going deeper again than beyond that. We find ourselves in the middle of several stories bigger than ourselves. Um, my kids love playing with Russian dolls uh, and you keep going inside and you keep finding another doll. And, and so we have stories within stories. And the smallest and most obvious is what you were saying, our personal stories and our family stories. But then we all grew up in the story of the city or the country or the town or the area in which we live. And then a, a kind of cultural history that shapes us. And then beyond that, we get right into these kind of foundational stories that shape so much more. These are the big stories that tell us about the nature of the universe and actually then what it means to be human. Yeah, and I, I, I guess this is what we were starting to touch on uh, in the last episode, these deeper value systems and how they shape and inform us, that we build our lives on them. Um, foundation stories are the base that we tell ourselves about how we relate to the world, what's important. We're often not aware of them. 
Um, and sometimes we can get muddled between different foundational stories, but foundations are crucial. Um, in the summer, uh, we started to notice some cracks appear in both the internal and then delightfully on the external walls of our house. And we got our friend over as a civil engineer to have a look and to see if there was anything fundamentally wrong. And he looked in the inside and he was like, okay, okay. And we weren't quite sure what he was saying about whether or not this was a good thing or a bad thing. Then he gets outside and he sees the cracks on the outside and he's like, oh no. And you're like, okay, so it's definitely bad. He's like, yeah, totally. This is foundational. And what he was saying was the one part of the corner of our house, the foundation has slipped, has got undermined. And in as a result, the entire side of our house is trying to pull away and pull down. And the cracks are appearing because it is no longer able to withstand the weight of the house because uh, the foundation isn't strong enough. And what you're seeing is cracks as the rest of the house, which is solid, is stable, is trying to to hold off this twisting motion as the foundations um, are proven to be weak. And what we're seeing in our world and in our lives around us is these weak foundations and the twisting and the, um, the pulling of our lives because our foundational stories aren't strong enough to hold up the experiences and the lives that we're living today. So as I mentioned earlier, I was watching David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. David Attenborough, as in Sir David Attenborough, 93-year-old granddad who used to be on the BBC, we probably all grew up with, but has gone off to Netflix um, so that he can talk maybe slightly more openly about climate change and what you're seeing happening in the world. Did you know I got to work with David Attenborough a few years ago? <laughs> that, is, that is the one. And that'll be a whole other story for another episode about you and David. Um, yeah, so it's fascinating shows, watching with the kids. And the show opens with um, David standing in this derelict building in a place called Pripyat. And uh, he says everything changed on the 26th of April, 1986, when there was an explosion at Chernobyl. And the explosion mm -hmm. was the result, he's saying, of bad planning and human error mistakes. And he talks about this environmental catastrophe, this single event. But the two true tragedy he's saying is still unfolding. It's barely noticeable from day to day because of bad planning again and human error. And he looks straight into the camera and he says, this is my witness statement and vision for the future. And it's really powerful stuff the way he does it. And I'm watching it with my kids and they're transfixed. And he goes on to make this appeal to us all to care about the environment, to act to solve the climate crisis. And the way he does that is he tells the story, his personal story, his family story, how he grew up and into the space that he's in now, and then appeals to his own foundation story. He talks about the evolutionary story and how things have come about, but not really why. You see, science and the evolutionary story don't explain why we should care for the planet. And I think then he has to rely on his personal story because his foundation story, the science that he wants to rely upon, isn't actually strong enough to support the argument he wants to build on top of that. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because ultimately what he's pointing out is the human error, the bad planning, like my foundations in my house, have resulted in this 
this collapsing of our planet. The foundations weren't strong enough. And yet the story that he is trying to build it on isn't strong enough to withstand even the correction that he's trying to seek. The idea that our story is built on an accident, that it's just this random interactions of atoms over billions and billions of years. It's just pure coincidence that we have a planet like this, which then raises the question, why on earth should we care about it? Yes, because the story he's telling is really a story of survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. My kids shy away from those scenes on planet Earth, you know, when the lion goes in for the kill. But the evolutionary story leads to that idea, survival of the fittest, not the view that everyone is equal or every animal is equal. That doesn't actually fit very well with David Attenborough's narrative. And so he ends up having to do this pivot and reducing his argument to usefulness again, Mm -hmm. utility. We need to care for the planet because it's useful for our own survival. Yes. And and once again, we see that therefore this foundation story isn't strong enough because if this story that we build our lives on is just about survival, if it has no meaning, if it's all an accident, why should we care? Can we, how much can we cope without? How many species can we uh, allow to go into extinction before it starts to have an impact on our lives and therefore we stop um, doing stuff? We end up returning to this framework of usefulness, the framework that we talked about in episode one, and we only then respond to a crisis if it is directly um, impacting our survival. Why bother changing our lifestyle if it's just about some random insect that doesn't affect me? We create a new hierarchy of values with some species and diversity being more um, valuable than others. Yeah, and that, that's some pretty fundamental stuff that we're then pushing into because Sir David's personal passion and his story is undeniable. And he's absolutely entitled to argue that we should look after creation. And he's right in that. But he's struggling to articulate a compelling foundation story to back up his case. Yeah. And it's, it's crucial, isn't it? Because this foundation narrative doesn't just impact our response to loss of biodiversity or the climate crisis. It has deep implications for how we understand ourselves. The type of world we live in frames how we are to live. And if, if evolution is right and based on this random or accidental events, then humans have no overarching purpose. We just live in a world of survival of the fittest. Environmentalism gets built on a chaos and disorder narrative that it's just random. And therefore, we don't we don't have to impact anything. Or the flip side of that is the world around us is so chaotic and disordered and there's nothing um, meaningful or purposeful happening out there. So we have to build in the control. We have to build in the order on ourselves. Yeah. And that makes me think of uh, Marie Kondo. Of course it does. Um <laughs> Obviously. Um, You mean like the Netflix tidying Japanese lady? Yeah, yeah. and we aren't actually sponsored. There are other channels available, you know. But yeah, yeah, a little. So Marie Kondo has this show about uh, tidying your room and and, and creating order in the chaos. And although she wouldn't maybe articulate it this way, it seems to me, she's saying, look, the world outside is is chaotic uh, and it's cluttered. And uh, what I can do is bring order to the chaos and a little bit you can control. So I want you to tidy your room. And it seems to me that's again has this resonance between her and, and Jordan Peterson as another person articulating a very similar idea. The world outside is chaotic. And so we wrote this book 
12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Um, and Peterson's a fascinating character. Um, he gives these lectures in downtown Toronto, 12 three-hour lectures that people were paying to come in here. And he's lecturing from Genesis chapter 1 through to Genesis chapter 12. And his whole kind of free speech narrative is based on the fact that God spoke in Genesis 1 and creation came into being, that speech acts are fundamentally creative and important. God said, let there be light and there was light. And so he looks at those texts and Genesis talks about the tovu vavahu, that's my best Hebrew <laughs> for the, the dark, formless void, the chaotic waters that were there and God spoke order into it. Uh, and Peterson's saying, look, on a micro level, you need to tidy your room, you need to get up at the same time, you need to have your breakfast. And that's okay if you've got a sort of basic structures in your life and you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But he really struggles then with the macro picture of the, the level of chaos out there. Uh, and he can't really respond to that. But his the reason his book was so popular, I think, is because he said, life's chaotic and I'm going to help you bring some order back into your life. Yeah, because he he touched on something that was fundamentally true, that God speaks order into chaos and brings goodness out of that. And yet, by then saying, therefore, we do that now, he'd forgotten the relationship part of humanity with God, that it's God speaking order. It's God um, overcoming the chaos. If he put, he put it all on us and we can't do it. We aren't in control. God is. Totally. I, I agree. And I just think the point is, though, these two characters in their different ways, I suppose, are exposing the chaotic nature of the world and attempts to respond. And we want to look at that a little bit differently. Yes, because they're right. Uh, if our foundation stories aren't capable of holding up our lived experience, they fail us and that we're left hopeless. Um if we end up in this space where we're saying it's all happened by accident, science science says it's an accident. Neil Postman says um, an accidental life to many of us is not worth living. A chaotic life demands control. But when it's rooted in human control, control is an illusion. It doesn't work. We're living that reality right now. We can't even control a tiny little virus and it's shut our planet down. I mean, I just have to see some of the mums and the parents that are um, dropping their kids off at school desperately, desperately anxious because they're trying to work out how do I keep my kid in school, being educated and safe? They can't do both. And they're feeling the pressure and the anxiety uh, skyrocket. Even just trying to get a test and trace appointment is unsettling. We are seeing firsthand that control isn't possible and our worldview is crumbling around us. So we've reflected on Sir David Attenborough, his life on our planet, and he offers this witness statement, this vision for the future. But when you strip it away, to be human is about accidental survival. It's about random chance. It's a depersonal and very empty universe. That's what Richard Dawkins, I think, is trying to pick up in his book, The Selfish Gene. Natural selection favors the genes that control our survival machines. That's the way he describes us in such a way that they make best use of other survival machines and the environment around them. Again, it's about utility and it's about a selfish way of understanding this world. I kind of hope 
<laughs> David's not listening to this because it's not good news for what he's trying to advocate for because he is resting this whole idea of preserving and protecting and caring for our planet. And yet his foundation story, the thing that whole argument is is resting on, gives him no reason to value species or even our own. We're just here and then we could just be gone. Yeah, well, yes. And I kind of hope he is listening then for that very same reason to the whole episode, because I guess we want to point forward now to the good news that is coming. Nice. Because... Well, I, that's what being human, this, what this project is trying to do, isn't it? It's, it's like David Attenborough, we're saying this is our witness statement. This is what we see happening in the world around us. These are our stories. And to use a court analogy, we're going to cast this vision and make this witness statement and, and, and sh share with people this biblical vision that we see for the future, this renewed humanity. Yeah, we are living in a moment of like catastrophe, potentially, like it's cultural and environmental. And it is the result of bad planning and human error, the result of faulty foundation stories. So as we move then into our second part, we're going to look at what our biblical foundation story is. So how would our witness statement begin? Well, I think pretty obviously we're going to go to Genesis 1 and 2 just to begin that, um, which we read in isolation and then often try and compare with the scientific story of our day. But actually, the Israelites were aware of other founding stories in the ancient Near East, stories like the Enuma Elish and the kind of Babylonian story, which would have had Marduk, one god, fighting against Tiamat. And out of that, the creation was almost like the leftovers of that battle. And then human beings were made to worship the gods, to serve their needs, to kind of go and get them food and, and to be ordered around and to go and do things. And it was just so low level in its understanding of what it was to be human, so kind of menial in the way it framed things. It's usefulness it again. Totally is, back to episode one. Whereas the contrast we want to draw and the biblical text is drawing is that Genesis begins, Elohim bara berezit, Again, my best Hebrew there, but it's beautiful. God created in the beginning. I know we usually say in the beginning, God created, but it starts with God right there at the very beginning. Elohim. So everything is centered on God and it's intentional. There's nothing accidental about this creation. God spoke and things came into being. He has authority to bring order out of the chaos. He is in control. Creation is not the accidental result of some ancient gods having a fight. And human beings aren't there to go and get food for the gods. It's so much richer than that. I, I love this idea of, of Genesis setting out this process of forming and filling and, and seeing all of it is good. And I guess the key point here is that creation isn't ours. It's not ours to decide its value or its usefulness. Creation is God's. Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It forces us to adopt God's value system for creation, not our own. And here we see that he thinks creation is good. He values it. More than that, he loves it. And, and by it, I mean everything. And then on the sixth day, God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Beautiful. 
It's it's incredible text. It's the earthling from the earth, the Ha'adam from the Adama. This kind of building in chapter one. Uh, it was good. It was good. It was good over the six days, as you were saying. But then it's it's kind of culminating in the creation of the earthling. And then in chapter two, we have a retelling of the story, but structured in a different way. And and in this chapter, the the earthling is kind of like the center of creation. And God saw that it was very good. And what he's what he's created us as human beings to be is is in his image. The the language is really strong and powerful. It's like that we're idols. Like the image bearing language is so strong. We are almost like mini idols, mini representations. And so we're formed in the image of God. And then he animates us and brings to life us with the, the nephesh, this breath of God is put within us. And then we're installed and placed within the whole temple of creation. Uh, there's this wonderful uh, little kind of explanation in, in uh, one of the things about what a human being is, one of the biblical dictionaries. Human beings stand in unique relationship with God. No stone or wood chiseled um, into a godling's image. The, the Adam, the first earthling in two, is an animated walking, talking and relating mediation of the essence, the will and the work of the sovereign creator God. As living image of the living God, Adam, the first human being, bears a relationship to God like that of a child to a parent. It's just incredibly powerful stuff. It's beautiful. And then, so this foundation story does, unlike for David Attenborough, this story gives us the why. Why do human beings exist? It's not because we're some slave labor for the gods who have got bored or had a fight or whatever. Instead, we're given ability to have control, to bring order, to steward creation, to be fruitful, to multiply. But unlike Jordan Peterson, we recognize that we do this in relationship with God, the ultimate creator, the ultimate order bringer. We have dominion, but we have it in relationship to God. And it's it's brilliant. This idea of, of Psalm 8, where it, it asks, what is a human being? Our narrative around us, the stories that we're hearing today will tell us a human being isn't much. But the psalmist said that, We've been made a little lower than God, but we have been crowned with glory and with honor. And ultimately, Jesus demonstrating what it means to be human fully and completely, he shows us. He shows us by bringing order in the storm, by bringing order to a body that needs healing, by bringing food, by bringing comfort, by by speaking peace over creation and over people's worlds and, and bodies and relationships. But he always does it by doing what he sees the father doing. It is always done in relationship. We rule over the works of God's hands, but God is the one who puts everything under our feet. And so we get that incredible focus on what it is to be human. And then beyond that, the importance of creation, the why, as you say, that was different than David could convey. John three sixteen for God so loved the world. But the word there is the cosmos. We often kind of think of that in terms of just us as people. But he's saying actually he loves the whole cosmos so much that he gave his only son to die on a cross. Romans 8 says creation is groaning. It's, it's crying out, not just us as human beings again, but the whole of creation. And Colossians 1 talks about that restoration, the consummation of the whole of creation. And so there's just this richness to the text that gives us a why we should care about human beings, but also why we should care about creation. 
Jesus is therefore good news to a chaotic, disordered world because he spoke and brought order over the chaos. When we have ideas around environmentalism or activism around climate change and and, and getting our world back on an even keel, when we base that story on an accident or a, a series of accidental events, then there is no purpose. So while David Attenborough may be a great advocate for protecting the environment, he will always struggle to explain why we should care. And therefore, he is forced to go back to this utilitarian, this usefulness mandate, because ultimately the only story he has to rest his activism on is the idea that the planet is useful to us. Uh, We keep referencing it back, but episode one, go back and listen, because it it reminds us that you only have value if, if you're useful. You see these links with survival of the fittest, only the most useful survive. But instead, Christians, we get to live into and out of a fundamentally different story, a story that says that we are image bearers, a story that says that we are made for a relationship and these relationships matter. They're not just chance, they have purpose. We have a purpose to steward and cultivate creation. Um, We're going to talk about this more in future episodes, but this foundation story tells us why we should care for creation. So, Peter, what are your takeaways? How do you want to wrap this up? Yeah, well, I know many Christians get frustrated with Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion, and, and, and I get a part of that, but we should be leading the charge on creation care. I mean, I remember the challenge when I was at Bible College of somebody saying to me, you have to do this uh, kind of computer thing where you look at how many planets it would take to live the way I live if everybody were to do it. And I put in information about myself and it said it would take two and a half planets for everybody to live the way I live. Actually, the main challenge was around eating meat. I like meat and that a lot. And I kind of moved, I guess, to vary my diet. I'm on a, I would call myself a flexitarian now. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but a lot more plant-based diet. I've got what my wife calls a salad face. I'm not a big fan. Um, and I would order a burger with no shrapnel, but, but now I'm trying to balance my diet a little better and think about that. Because the God story has been misused to say, look, this planet's just going to be burned up and and it's there for us to use and abuse basically as we want. Uh, and my poor dad always gets picked on at this moment, but he used to drive along and basically throw his litter out the window as he drove because he said, well, look, this planet's being burned up. My soul will go to heaven when I die and all I'm interested in is saving souls. It's like, no, that's not our foundational story. So I think the environment is a really interesting area for us to potentially bridge build. It's a real missional opportunity. Uh, we want to get alongside people and say, yeah, we do care for creation. We think it's absolutely amazing. And in the way our culture cares for creation, we want to get alongside, but sometimes ask the question, can you explain why it's so important to you? We know the why, we aren't so good at the caring bit. So I want to push into that as one of my reflections. But what about you? What are you reflecting on in our episode today? I think I think the bit for me... Um, really resonates around this story of control and how much we need to control a, a chaotic world, especially in this moment. I think, uh, so therefore practices of how do we offer a different story come back to some of our favorite themes, our theme around Sabbath. We work, we control our environment because we think it all it all lands on us. But Sabbath reminds us to rest because actually it all lands on God. Um, this, this idea that, that the days 
came out of evening, evening, then morning. It, it's a rest into work. And then ultimately the seventh day, the day of rest doesn't end. It continues because we rest in the presence of God. We rest in Jesus, this deep underlying theme throughout scripture. Sunday being the one day of the week where we are commanded to remember that we are not the center of the universe. God is. We are not in control. He is. Order is found in God's will, not our own. Yeah, I love that deep underlying theme of rest. I think it's just brilliant and not so often missed. And we're in this strange period of enforced rest in one sense, which isn't actually feeling very restful. Not um, at the kind all. Of lockdowns and the fire breaks, exactly. Uh, and in some ways, we're actually having to try harder to rest because our patterns and our habits look really different. I don't leave the house to go to work and then come back here the weekend to rest. Everything's based around here. So I have to actually work harder to find those places of peace and rest in this moment. It's really tough. It is, it is. But that, and, and like you just mentioned, that, that idea that out of rest also comes a sense of peace. When so many people around me are anxious and fractious and struggling, um, how do I practice peace? How do I bring calm into a conversation? Um, how do I be a non-anxious presence that we've talked about before? How do I make sure that I am bringing uh, peace into a conversation or into a situation? And then ultimately, when I'm feeling like my peace is slipping away, how do I practice worship God is in control. God is on the throne. My house may be falling down, but God is with me and I will praise his name because that reorientates my entire worldview to remember it is on him. It's not on me. Yeah, and I practically I'm finding that Lectio 365 app from the guys at 24-7 Prayer really helpful in this season. So it's maybe only 10 minutes each day. It's like a I kind of pause to be still, I mean, very practically say, look, to breathe slowly, to recenter my scattered senses upon the presence of God, and then to practice love, or, and there's different practices in each week they're looking at, and every small and big act of looking after creation in our kitchens and in our workplaces and our local forests and parks, wherever we get to go and walk, is an opportunity to be fully human, I, even just going out into creation and acknowledging its creation. <laughs> it's not just this wonderful view out there. I like sometimes the social media to push a little bit of that and put the hashtag and just to say, no, this is God's creation. And then our small acts are a response to that, an act of worship. I love you, God, as I pick up a piece of litter, as I take my rubbish out to the bin, as I try and recycle what I can. I value what you've created. I want to thank you, to quote Sir David, for this unique and spectacular marvel that is your creation. The He's last beautiful. bit's me, not him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I suppose there's a challenge to all of us is this, as we're talking about stories, our personal story, our family story, our foundation story, how do we practice storytelling? How do we understand what our foundation story is and how it na helps us navigate? So to you, the listeners, what is your foundation story? What are you resting your life upon and how is it helping you navigate today? And how can you share that truth with others as you go about your days? So thanks for, so much for listening. This is the Being Human podcast. Please like it, share it, uh, rank us, rate us, something like that that helps other people find out about us. Do check out the website at beinghumanproject.com I will get that right and remember it better um, but yeah and stay in touch with us through social media be blessed until next time bye